Good morning. So today we continue our journey. And thank you all for who have made this journey here today. I know a lot of people are on their way somewhere else. So we're happy to have you guys here on the March break. We've been talking about walking with Jesus and the idea of walking with Matthew and how he walked with Jesus along this path. And so we're going to walk through the gospel of Matthew on the way to the cross with Jesus. And last week we talked about Jesus having this kind of mountaintop experience, this beautiful experience where he experiences the presence of God in, a, in launching his ministry, where he is told he is the son of God, where he receives a, a voice from heaven and where he has been uh, receiving the, the, the dove that comes down, the Holy Spirit. And then he moves on. And what we're about to, to do is go, go with Jesus on this journey. And not always, even when you have a kind of a great experience, not always on your journey are you going to have uh, only pleasant experiences. Sometimes when you're on a road trip, you hit bumps in the road. I remember uh, a journey that I had that was pretty amazing. We went to uh, the, the Czech Republic. I had been in Germany for a month studying German for my degree, and I had met a bunch of new friends there, and we decided we're going to go on a journey. We're going to take a road trip to Prague. And so we got on the road, we drove uh, without incidents all the way to Prague, had a great time, a, an amazing experience, made some you know, new friends there, just kind of getting to know each other, really valuable experience. And then we made our way back. We had rented a car. And on the journey back, we were getting really low on gas. We started kind of panicking, are we going to be able to find gas? And that experience itself was a little bit harrowing. And then we saw a gas station. So we oh, pull into the gas station. We get gas, everything's good. Let's head back to Munich. And as we kind of pulled out, uh, the driver that was driving the car uh, slammed into another car behind us. We're like, oh. So that was a problem. We got out of the car. You got to remember, I'm in a, I'm in a weird experience. Here, here I am in the middle of the Czech Republic with three Spaniards and a Canadian trying to figure out how to talk in German in, a, in an accident. And so we started talking to this guy, and uh, he basically said, give me money. I want money. And we're like, no, no, wait, no, no. Figure this out. Let's talk. And he, he, he refused. So then basically, okay, we'll call the police. So we call the police, and these guys show up in the car, and we're like, okay, let's, let's deal with this. And then they say, give me money. <laughs> and we're like, what? No, this is outrageous. We're not going to do this. This is beyond my principles, my morals. No, we're not doing this. And so we sat in our car waiting. We're going to outweigh them. And we're going to, well, we're sat in there for about an hour. And then we're like, let's pay them the money. <laughs> it was one of those trips, right, where when we got back home, not only did we have to pay the money, and then, then all of a sudden the insurance bills come in and our, our, the cost of our trip like tripled all of a sudden. And it was, it was a roadblock. It was a little stumble in the, in the journey. And this is the type of thing that we're going to see Jesus face. He's come out of this amazing high experience of having encountered the presence of God. And then immediately he walks into a bump on the road. Matthew 4.1. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Duh. It's one of those like most uh, complete understatements of the millennia, right? He, was four, <laughs> he didn't eat for 40 days. He's hungry. What's interesting about this passage is you recognize he's, he's coming out of the waters of baptism and he immediately is going into the desert. He's immediately going into the wilderness. Now, I hope that starts to ring some kind of bells for those of you who have been in the scriptures for a while. We talked about the fact that in the Gospel of Matthew, it was written to the Jewish people, 
that there's a, a parallel between the life of Christ and the people of Israel. Can you remember a time when Israel went through waters and ended up into the desert? Right after the Exodus, right? They go through the Red Sea, parts on both sides, they go through the waters, and they come out, and then they complain and grumble, and then they end up in the desert for 40 years. And here we find Christ in the desert after going through baptism for 40 days. This is not an accident. Jesus is the embodiment of the people of Israel. And in the desert, he meets Diablos, the devil, the adversary, the enemy of humanity. Now, when we hear about the devil nowadays, I think a lot of times the first question that comes to mind is like, is, is he real? Do you, do you kind of, growing up in kind of a modern context, you got to admit, a lot of times we kind of feel silly, right? We kind of think of Homer with the devil and one thing and the angel here, and we're kind of like, ah. is that, is is that kind of just mythology? Can a, can a real rational human being actually believe in this spiritual entity that's trying to manipulate humanity, keep us captured to our sin? It's not always the easiest thing, is it? If we're, if we're honest with ourselves, do I believe it in a devil? And our culture has kind of told us, oh, that's mythology, that's fairy tales. How do you guys believe in that silliness? And some people said, oh, yeah, I'm going to kind of, no, I don't, I don't know if I believe in the devil. And sometimes what we'll say when you see the, you hear the devil, you hear about demons, what we'll hear is, um, this is just kind of like the collective sin of humanity. Or this is kind of like the system of sin that we find ourselves in. It's the culture of humanity that we find ourselves in. And I do believe those things exist. The question is, does that mean that there isn't such thing as a real devil? What I find really interesting is all the scientists that tell us, oh, this is silly and that's kind of foolishness. They're starting to tell a different story when it comes to other things. When it talks about intelligent beings in the universe, you're starting to hear scientists say, well, there must be other intelligent beings in the universe. In fact, there's a study that was released this week, I saw in the journal, um, a Harvard physicist had declared that they're trying to find an explanation for these kind of weird uh, radio wave pulses that are happening, and they can't be able to discover their pattern, they're trying to figure out what is this all about, and so this Harvard physicist has declared, you know, one of the possible explanations, that, what I think it probably is, it's probably alien technology. This is a Harvard physicist saying that they think that the aliens are He's just saying, this is the, to explain how this happens. What I find very intriguing about this is the very people who might say to us, it's silly to believe in a devil. It's silly to believe in a malevolent intelligence, other intelligent beings in the universe who are kind of predisposed towards hurting humanity. That's silly. There's no other intelligent life in the universe. And yet they kind of tell us that we have to believe intelligent. Do you see the discrepancy here? Is it really that foolish to think there's other intelligent beings in the universe? The Bible has told us for millennia, we're not it. We're not the only game in town. We're not the only intelligent beings that occupy the universe. In fact, there are beings right here in this space on earth. And there's actually an evil being who has an undue amount of control over this place. There is an evil, wicked mind who is purposely enslaving humanity to their sin. Now, we got to be careful with this. 
And when we talk about the devil, there's, there's dangers. You can get over-obsessed with it, or you can dismiss it. And, and one of the things I'd like to say is, when I think about the, the whole question of uh, the devil, or spiritual warfare, or these type of things, we've got to recognize a few things. A lot of time when we think of the devil, we kind of like to use it as an excuse. Oh, the devil made me do it. And I don't think Scripture aligns with that. I don't think, like, the devil can be omnipresent. He's not God. So he, like, you blame the devil. It's like, there's no way the devil simultaneously shows up on each of your shoulders at all times, whispering things on you. you. Get what I'm saying? Now, does he have other minions? Are there other evil entities? Sure. But one of the ways I think that the devil works is actually more controlling how things work. He controls the culture and the system that we live in. He's always shaping things. So when you're walking down the, the street and you see a billboard and you kind of get your carnal desires inflamed, you ever think to yourself, like, why is all this stuff here? Why do I feel like there's some intelligent being trying to make us more wicked? Well, maybe, just maybe, there's an influence there. Let's be careful about dismissing it, and let's be careful about um, trying to pretend that every single thing that happens is like a demon under every rock, right? This is the difficult thing, the balance that we're trying to find when we talk about spiritual warfare. Because he's not omnipresent, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, but there is... I believe, a purposeful, intelligent being who is trying to take humanity down. And you know what? This also might help us. When I, when I understand this, I believe that this truth helps us understand when I look at someone who's um, falling to sin or who hurts me or is my enemy or my opponent or trying to do things to me, you got to recognize, you know what? They're trying to deal with this too. They have to try to work against this system. They're also being dragged down. And it kind of gives you a little bit of humanity for them, doesn't it? It gives you a little bit of grace to understand how difficult it is for them to function as well. But there is personal responsibility. And I think and when you read this story, there's no way at the end of it Jesus would have said, oh, the devil made me do it if he had succumbed. It's a personal responsibility that we can't use as an excuse. Now, we have to also recognize the state that Jesus is in. He's been fasting for 40 days. I don't know about you, if you've ever fasted. Most, I think, I fasted for a few days. And I was extremely exhausted afterwards. Leanne kind of preached a sermon on fasting and the, and the, the greatness of fasting. But there's also this part where fasting is, is physically weakening. I cannot fathom 40 days of fasting. I had an uncle I saw fast for about 30 days and was not able to kind of get up off the bed. It's like completely draining. So you can imagine the state that Jesus is in physically. He is completely weakened, yet he is spiritually strengthened. And now he faces off with the prince of the world, the powers of the air. When we read the story, before we even begin, I just want to throw this out there. A lot of times we read the, the temptation of Jesus, and it's kind of like, yeah, 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 he was tempted, bread, blah, blah, blah. Was he really tempted? He's Jesus. He was never going to give in. We know the end of the story. Right? Do you ever feel that way? Like, what does this have to do with me? I'm not God in flesh. How can the temptation of Jesus have anything to do with me? Because it's so easy for him. He's the son of God. It wasn't even real, real temptation. What I'd like to point out is, C.S. Lewis said something really powerful when I read this, and, and I thought it was really a, a good insight. He said, do you ever think about your own temptations when you've been tempted towards something? Do you notice that the longer you resist the temptation, the harder and stronger the temptation is? It's more and more difficult to resist, right? 
And at some point you might give in or Jesus took the temptation to the pinnacle of its power. Like he was like, like enduring this temptation in a way that you can't even understand because he resisted way more than you probably have. He's taken to a place where he was being pulled in a way that, that was even more difficult than you have. So when you say, Jesus can't understand my temptations. Like, you don't understand Jesus' temptations. You don't understand the, the strength of what he was going through, the excruciating pull that this moment was for him. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, a human being shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8, 3. What is the temptation Jesus is facing here? Well, first of all, I do believe it is physical. I do believe that he was going through a really difficult amount of temptation. Sometimes I think we think it was like a one and done kind of thing. Double show ups, hey, make bread. No, okay, sorry, I'm not here. Think about 40 days of the devil saying, make some bread, make some bread, sourdough bread. <laughs> Light rice, mm, tasty, toast it. You think about that every day when you're in this class. This is not like just a, a simple thing. He's, he's taking a, a, a temptation that is beyond our comprehension in that sense, that physical temptation. But I also, also think there's a spiritual temptation here. He is being tempted to become completely independent, to rely on his own powers, to take the shortcut, the easy way out, to not endure the pain that's common to humanity, the, the hunger. To not endure the way of the cross, really. Why don't you just jump to the end? Now, what's happening also in this passage, you start to see the, the power of Scripture. And, and, and when we look at it, you start to realize that this is actually modeled off of a, a common thing that happened back in the days with rabbis. It was basically like a Haggadidic rabbi battle where you would have two rabbis taking scriptures and kind of battling each other. Proof texting and trying to figure out. And, and so you have this idea. This is, this is the format this is taking. When, you, when the Jewish people saw this, it's like, here's this Satan using scripture and here's Jesus using scripture. And they're, they're kind of in a, it's kind of like a rap battle, right? If you're Messiah, make manna. No, I only serve and say Hosanna. That type of thing. Oh, <laughs> There's, there's a sense of what's happening with, with this, this battle, this verbal battle, is Satan isn't just kind of saying, hey, make some bread. There's a lot behind this. There's some scripture behind this. The people of Israel were expecting the Messiah to do what God did for them when they were in the wilderness. And if you remember what they did, they were there grumbling and angry and hungry. And, oh, no, no food was better for us in Egypt. And then God brings manna. And so it was expected. The people believed that the Messiah would bring manna and that the time of the Messiah, the Messianic age, would be a time of great amount of food. And so he's saying, hey man, pony up. Show you the Messiah. Deliver the food. And so there's this kind of temptation here spiritually for him to just grab his Messianic title by the horns and take it for himself. I also want to point out that, notice what the devil calls him? If you are the son of God, notice what Jesus replies. Humans don't live by bread alone. I'm a, I'm a 
I'm human. Yes, I, I'm God made flesh, but I've had to give up equality with God. That's the, the call. That's the incarnation. That's what Jesus has done. If he grabs onto this power, in many ways he's discarded the more difficult path, the plan that the Father has for him. Producing the bread will deny his humanity, will deny his trust in God. God, I'm going to trust that you're going to feed me. This is the problem that Israel, they didn't trust God. They didn't trust that he'd feed them. And so now Jesus actually survived this test that the Israelites themselves faced. He says, I will depend completely on God. Instead of self-aggrandizing, he wants God-given evangelizing. If he's truly the son of God, then he's going to trust in the Father for all things. And then the devil took him on to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. What is the temptation here? I believe it's trying to arm wrestle God to do what he wants, making him do what he wants. Again, it's leaving his humanity, trying to claim and claw back to his divinity. Later in the gospel, Jesus admits, he says, I could call town 10,000 angels to rescue me from this cross. But to do so, to make this dramatic display of his power is to, again, abandon the plan for his journey to the cross. He could, he could be here again, being a, a kind of appealing to Jesus' sense of Messiahhood. The Messiah was supposed to have this kind of grand spectacle the Messiah was supposed to have a public scene. The Messiah was supposed to have the angels. So if he, if he jumps off this place, all of a sudden it'll be like, whoa, here, look at all these angels. Look, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. So the devil uses Psalm 91. Hey, you'll be rescued. If you're really a Messiah, let's just show it. Let's show people. Show off your powers. Your shiny new son of God powers. One of the questions is like, is he saying to like, kill yourself? Is there kind of that... Jesus in the kind of broken state, kind of fasting and kind of delirious. No, you know, I think, I think he's trying to say, make God prove himself. This isn't your test, Jesus. This is God's test. Test God. Let him show who you really are. Now, Israel had been faithless in the desert as well. And they constantly tested God. They constantly were saying, God, you'll be my God if you do this. Have you ever found yourself in that place, in that temptation, like, where you're just kind of so desperate, you're like, God, I'll follow you if you do this, but if you don't, man, I'm out. Kind of put him to a test in your humanity. If you're honest, like, I'm the honest. That's happened to me in my life. It's like, no, I need you to do this. Otherwise, I'm, I'm out of here. Now, obviously, that's not the path of Christ. Obviously, that is falling into the weakness of the body and the 
darkness of your soul. But, but that happens, doesn't it? There's a sense in which you're, you're, you're being appealed to like, God, I will put conditions on this relationship. You do this for me, I'm here for you. He's basically saying here, if, if he does this, he's basically saying, and Satan's trying to get him to say, I'm loyal to you if you do certain things for me. And that's why he says, unlike the Israelites, his loyalty to God does not depend on God guarding him from all harm. He's not going to push this and try to make him prove himself. He's not going to have a heavenly invasion of angels to prove who he is. Instead, he's going to go through personal persuasion. And that's how the kingdom of God is going to come to earth. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan! For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Finally, the showdown happens. Kingdom of God versus kingdom of this world. Here's the temptation that he can quickly and even right now, not going through this journey, not going through the cross, I'm waiting all these millennia to have the kingdom here on earth. Here it is. I will give you the kingdom. You can be the Roman emperor, which is what the people believed that the Messiah was supposed to be. Here it is. You want to rule over the earth? I give it to you. All you have to do is acknowledge this is my planet. All you have to acknowledge is that I am the one who runs this, but you can be my emperor, Jesus. You can run this thing. Accept the status quo and fit in. Again, this is, this is a shortcut to power. I do want to point out that Satan is very confident in his control over everything here, isn't it? He's kind of, he's very like, I can give this to you. You want this? It's yours. Which should have us a little thinking when we're looking around our world, just recognizing, and we're talking about the spiritual battle, there is a prince of this world. There is powers and principles and authorities and, and heavenly realms that are still active and loose although the power has been broken by Christ. But sovereignty over the nations was promised to the Messiah. And here is the offer. Will he take the easy route? Or is he going to take the difficult route and walk down this road knowing where it's headed to him giving up his very life? Israel, when they were in the desert, when they were tempted... They gave in. They worshipped other gods. They, they, at certain times, like for certain pleasures, oh, I'll give in, here you go, I'll do this. Gives me a little temporary, immediate pressure, boom. Let's worship the golden calf. Other times they worship other gods like, you know what, like if, we, if we make a deal with this nation that worships these other gods, we can have a little bit of a political alliance here and then we're in a good place, we're going to be stronger as a people, so let's make this deal. And then in doing so, they're worshiping these other gods, allowing them into their nation and starting to infiltrate their lives. And the idolatry continues. The people of Israel failed the test in the desert of idolatry. They accepted promises. Jesus refuses. 
he will not fall into idolatry. And so this whole, if you notice the whole time, he's always quoting for Deuteronomy. Jesus is using this as kind of a, a commentary on Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3. And at the end of it, what is, what is the outcome? What I love about this, Satan says, hey, I'll give you all authority over all these kingdoms. I'll let you kind of run things. I, I, have, I have control of this. I have authority. So if, if you uh, follow me, then I will let, command everyone to follow you. And what I love about how this begins, instead of kind of accepting that and, and receiving that authority, instead Jesus says, actually, I got a command for you, Satan. Get out of here. Do you notice that? Isn't it interesting? He's offering him this power and this authority. He's like, no, no, I have authority here. You go. In fact, Jesus, if you, if you look at the kind of the parallels of the book of Matthew, it's very interesting going on. He begins this, this story where he's on a mountain being offered all the kingdoms and all the authority over all the earth. And he refuses it. At the end of Matthew, we find Jesus on a mountain saying, all authority has been given unto me. As he waited, he walked the path, he ends up receiving the very things that were offered at the beginning with the shortcut. And the devil left him. And the angels came and they attended to him. The word attended is very interesting. It can be actually translated like served or waited upon. They came in and they waited on him. Here you go, here's some food. Just like it happened actually, we see in the, in the scriptures with Elijah back in the, in the past where he had a very similar scene in the desert. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is victorious. That actually, Jesus defeats the devil here. That there is hope in temptation. That we don't have to always succumb to temptation. There is victory. God is faithful. But not on, his, like, not on your timetable. Right? It's on his timetable. You can't force it. When we start to think about our own lives and our own temptations, we start to realize what's happening with Jesus is very interesting, that he's being attacked on a few fronts. If you, if you ever heard of uh, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or not in sociology class, right, this pyramid here, if you, if you really think about where the sins are, are attacking, he's being attacked on these things. The first one, physiological needs, your need for food and bread. And this is attack there. Where are you being attacked on, on the physical aspects? Then we see that he was attacked on his need for security. Hey, are you really secure? Like, can God really protect you? Let's just see. Like, let's see if the angels are really there going to secure you. Then the questions of relationship and esteem. Like, do you, what's your relationship to all these people? Do you have power over them? Do you control them? Who are you? Do you have, you have the self-esteem to know that you are uh, the leader of the world? Let me give these things to you. Temptations. These are the same things that pull at us. But notice by refusing these temptations, he actually ends up in the top category, the, the self-actualization. I'd rather change it and say God-actualization. God actualizes him and he knows who he is in God. The kingdom of God is not bread and circuses and political power there, right? This is what he's trying to say. You're not going to gain the kingdom of God this way. Now, bread's good. Entertainment's good. Now we need governments. But as you're journeying, you realize that by being pulled in these areas, these type of powers, this type of food, these lusts, all these things, that you're being dragged into a place that's going to just ultimately pull you down away from God. So Satan tries to have Jesus grab onto these things. Being a child of God, 
when he heard who he was at the baptism, we would know that we are children of God. When we realize what a child of God is, it means that you have a relationship of trust with God that does not require miraculous exceptions to your limits of your humanity. Being a child of God means trusting despite not getting that miracle. However, it's going to take a lot, right? As we start to journey on this, this journey of being a child of God, you're going to face temptations. It's going to be hard to trust in God. You're going to hit times where, where trusting in God is not easy. And that's why we get pulled in, in different directions. As you travel the journey with Jesus, there will be temptation. As you are on the way, though you are called to obey. And you're going to have a difficult journey with Jesus. There's going to be cliffs of jealousy and, and ditches of idolatry. Depending on God, you, you, it's going to be hard to keep your feet steady and right on, on that path. Keeping in step with the Spirit is your only hope. So how do you deal with temptations? And we all have them. As humans, and we're each hit maybe differently, different things trying to pull us away from our relationship with Christ. What is temptation? What is sin? I want to turn to James 1, 13. I think there's a, a good insight into how this works. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. What is it that tempts you? It's something inside of you. It's that evil desire, that evil nature, the, the remnants. Even though you're washed through the blood of Christ, there's still that part of the, that nature in you. So when you think of what happened at the fall with Eve, what she's facing, there's this, there's this temptation, of the lust of the eyes. Right? The, oh, that looks good. There's this pull. There's a, there's a pride that pulls her in too. Right? Oh, I want to be just like God. There's a, there's a lot of things that are pulling us into temptation. And we see the, the physical pull, the lust that can enter our lives, the gluttony, even the violence. All these things are, are being pulled upon through our basic nature. Or even our, our, uh, sometimes our temptations come from our, our need for security. People do horrible things to try to protect themselves, don't they? Out of fear or anger that comes from maybe not being protected. Our relationships, well, sometimes our, our need for relationships gets pulled on, and that's where pride comes in, where jealousy starts to come in. All these things are pulling at our heartstrings and trying to pull us away from depending upon God. Realizing that we don't live by the flesh alone, but by the word of God. What's the difference between temptation and sin? Thinking about this a lot, we're kind of going through this. Because we see Jesus is tempted. Right? He has, does he, does he actually kind of go like, oh, I want bread? He does. He wants, he wants bread. Is that evil? I don't believe so. It's a natural human desire for sustenance. When it becomes sin is when we start playing with it, like, mmm, I put a little butter on there, some garlic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's how temptation turns to sin. 
With lust, it's the same thing. If you see someone like, oh, they're beautiful. Well, that might, just might be a reality. But then you start playing things in your mind and starts. That is where the sin comes in, right? Playing with the desire. Where does greed come in? You see a Lamborghini, you're like, oh, nice car. I must get that car, right? That's where evil starts to sink. That's where sin comes. It's, 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 and we know that Jesus says sin can be done just in your thought life. Like you, if you think fool in your head towards someone, you've sinned. Right? If you lust after someone in your mind, you've sinned. So it's not, we realize that there is an internal place. There's a line between temptation and sin somewhere. What do we do with that temptation that comes our way? Can I say that we just call out to Christ? That he's our path to escape? Recognizing that scripture is a, a place where we can kind of anchor ourselves as well. How do you resist temptation? Let's follow the example of Christ. Let's call out to Christ and ask him, Lord, have mercy on me. Let's recognize that if we have a dependence upon God, we realize that we depend upon God before all things. Keep realizing, I do not live by bread alone. I do not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And so I just encourage you to allow the word of God to become something you, you eat and, and live off of. So that when these things come your way, you have the word there to help you go, oh, wait a second, no, that's not true. That's a lie. That's a, that's, if I go down that path, I'm succumbing. I live on bread alone. I, we also uh, have these on the way packages at the back there or, or online where we're work, walking through the Matthew, book of Matthew together. Let's so take some scripture in together. Let's see how this helps us in this journey. I can't tell you how many times there's been places where you know, temptation comes and then like, a verse pops into my head and helps me sustain. This is, this is the thing that we need. To, this is how we fight back with the truth. Second of all, refuse to use power to benefit yourself. Jesus is like, hey, aggrandize yourself and show how powerful you are. Well, maybe we need to take a moment and realize when we, when we can do something, like acting on behalf of ourselves alone is a temptation to fall into sin, making a spectacle for our own self-aggrandizement. When we focus on ourselves, we're in danger of evil. So Christ has his eyes, when he's walking through this, he has his eyes on God. He's focused on God. And he recognizes in order to save the people, he's going to have to walk this path to the cross. It can't be about himself. Even though he is the son of God. Like he is. If anyone's worthy of being aggrandized, it'd be himself. And he realizes. And we need to recognize that too. It's not easy. Finally, we have to refuse idolatry. Look for those places in our lives. Like, what are the idols in my life? What are the things that I'm saying, yeah, I'll take that empire there. Thank you for that kingdom. It could be something like our jobs. It could be our families. It could be even just something that takes our time, like trivial. It might seem trivial, but like we're just kind of, every day we're playing this many hours of video games or we're watching this much time of hockey, or right? What is it that we're allowing to be idols in our lives that we're depending on for our own comfort, for our own sustenance. Like we don't realize, like, I'm using this as a crutch. That's where things like addictions come in. Are we, we're, we're needing something to kind of numb the pain. We don't realize the need is for God alone. Worship God alone. Don't work by the principles of this world. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not working by the principles of this world. And guess what? When we do this, we, we recognize there is victory. I want to just point that out to you. There is victory 
Temptation does not have to have its way. Temptation does not have to win. The devil does not have to have control. That as we practice, as we follow Jesus, I'm not saying you just become sinless, but you can see victories in those struggles that you're having. And that's the thing. As we walk, we grow, and it's all a journey. And someday we'll be purified from all this, but in the meantime, we stand with Christ and allow him to help us as we stand up and fight these temptations. So are we hungry for God? Are you hungry for God? Amen. What will I say when temptations come my way? And I pray that I'll say, I will not live by bread alone, but I will live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I'd like to take a moment to grab a postcard you have on your chairs beside you. Notice this is a lovely little desert scene. We're going to take a moment. Again, as we journey, we're going to take a moment to write a postcard. Now, you can write this postcard as you're writing to a friend. You want to write it to yourself like a journal. Maybe you want to write it as a prayer to God. Not going to dictate that. But we're going to take a moment just kind of reflect on this journey with Jesus as he went, went to the desert. And ask some questions. Here's some things that you can, can help maybe feed your reflections. What bread, what temptations, what motivations, what desires compete with your hunger for God? What's pulling? Now you can take these home with you. Don't, have to, don't worry, you're hand, not handing them in. Or maybe you want to write one and actually send it off to someone. Recall a time when you recognized that you didn't live by bread alone. When it kind of light when you're like, I don't... What, what verse, what scripture, what, what word did you hear from God at that moment? What did he say to you? Maybe it's a little easier just to say what scriptures or words have been significant in your life. What, what words have you held on to in the midst of temptation? What's helped you walk this journey and this, this battle as you journey with Christ? Take a little, couple minutes, maybe two minutes to reflect on this. Then we'll sing a song together and then we will receive the bread of heaven.